Justice Tech Pros here. I'm excited for today's episode. I've been uh, I arranged to have guest speaker Andrew Garrett on from Garrett Discovery. We wanted to dive into cell site technology. I've spoken to Andrew about it in the past, and um, he really enlightened me onto the science behind it, or should I say, the junk science behind it. And I want him to elaborate on that. Uh, I've used um, Andrew for several cases. And his services, in my opinion, are, they should be mandatory for defense teams whenever one is dealing with a supposed science affecting their case. And his firm offers a computer, mobile, video, and audio forensic experts and examinations. And that could be applied to all phases of a, of a, of a uh, trial and of an indictment, whereas you could utilize various experts to come in where it relates to the motion portion and then eventually the trial and then if you go to the appeal if unfortunately you don't get the results you were aiming for and your client is convicted incorrectly so I I have used Andrew and I'm continuing to use Andrew on the appeal phase on a um, on a specific case right now whereas I needed his services to verify an audio tape. Uh, the the I, I touched on this where the prosecution, the government was trying to say that a specific tape was referencing our client, and when in reality it wasn't. Uh, the the words that they were trying to state were inaccurate, and the defense team knew they were inaccurate. So we need an expert to confirm that and enhance the audio to prove that, and it's just vital. As I've touched on in many episodes, it's just vital when you're building your defense and you're strategizing to make certain that you're prepared with your own experts to oppose studies and to oppose forensics that the other side, the state or the government or the prosecutor may uh, introduce. And it's very important for the jury to see both sides and it's also very important even during the motion phase you know you could attach and get affidavits to confirm what you're putting in for a motion to fight maybe admittance of supposed discovery supposed evidence if it's not accurate and it's not what the government is painting it to be it's important to have an expert to uh, back up what the defense counsel is trying to explain so to me, his service is invaluable and it's necessary to have a proper defense and to make certain that your client is getting the most comprehensive and capable defense possible. And it's a matter of, you know, really going through the, the discovery, as I discussed, pulling out things that could be interpreted or could be a negative for your case and you need to analyze them and and, and understand them because you may be able to switch that around and prove that it's not as ironclad or as accurate as the government and and the U.S. attorney or the prosecutor and the state wants the jury to believe or even wants the court or the judge to believe. So it's very important that you get all those things lined up as you're building your case and really understand what experts you may need come down the road as you start putting things together. And today we're going to specifically focus on cell site. That was a big part of the last case I was involved in. And the government was making it so matter of fact, and they were really relying that 
and I truly feel that that weighed heavily on the on the jury. And um, you, you know, the defense it, it didn't affect our client, but it affected you know the co-defendants, and the defense really needed to have an oppositional expert to refute the claims. And I, I think you know it's just it's a necessary a necessary strategy and a necessary part of the process. So we're going to be speaking with Andrew, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. I believe it's going to be very informative for the uh, listeners. I think it's going to be very infor- informative for myself just to further expand on it. And I also believe, um, you know, even defense counsel listening and even defendants that may be listening, it'll just open their eyes a little bit of what to possibly focus on and inquire about. So with that said, uh, let me introduce uh, Andrew and we'll begin our uh, conversation. Andrew, how are you? Thanks for uh, chatting today. Doing great, doing great. Um, I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to have a dialogue today. I um, wanted to talk about it. it on the past episodes of the podcast. You know, I was talking about how a lot of these different sciences aren't as matter of fact as the other side, the government, the state, or the prosecutor uh, leads the jurors or even the court to believe. So I wanted to really dive in today to the cell side aspect of it because I was approached with it in, you know, the last case and we spoke about it in the past and I saw the kind of damage it could do when the defense does not put on an oppositional expert to kind of expose and go into the details of the cell site from the defense perspective and the jury only hears the prosecutor side. So I figured that would be what we kind of touch on today. Sounds good. One of the initial things I wanted to ask you, which I believe would be beneficial, is how is the, the training on the law enforcement side when they come in and they're, and they're learning about the technology? How does that angle work? What are their requirements? What do they have to do to really learn that technology? I, I think to um, help your listeners out, to understand you know, the trust of what I'm about to say and to know the validity of it, they probably need to understand a little bit about my background. And if you, if you want... I'll go through that in about 60 seconds here. Um, I worked U.S. Navy and then Navy Reserve. I was assigned to Naval Research Laboratory at NASA. I worked in geospatial. I worked uh, for a tower engineering crew before I ran the Illinois Wireless Information Network for the state of Illinois. I was one of the people that managed that. I tested software for space and warfare, uh, penetration testing for the Navy's satellite communications network. I was also vice president of a GPS company that built and designed GPS software to track people on their mobile phones. And then I ran the e-discovery and forensics laboratory at Scott Air Force Base. I spoke as a keynote speaker at Communication Tech, Telecommunications and Internet Association, which is TTIA, on location-based services. Uh, member of the FBI InfraGuard, 10 criminal defense lawyers associations. I'm also the president of Digital Forensic Community, and I've testified between reports, um, oral testimony in uh, depositions, hearings, and by report over 215 times in 13 states and certifies an expert in over 13 states. Um, that number's changed a lot. I'm looking at an old slide from, from a year and a half ago or so. But, yeah, I'm sure that's grown. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it grows daily. Yeah. But uh, and like this morning, featured front page Fox News business, uh, talking about the whole iPhone situation with Bill Barr and uh, – how they're 
they're spinning something out there that's not correct. Gotcha. Yes, I saw that. I saw that uh, article, and that's uh, that's going to be the latest hot, hot topic, I'm sure, in the news. <laughs> oh, it is. So, so here's basically kind of what's happened is, is there's a junk science. It's uh, using call detail records to determine the location of somebody with any accuracy is just not possible. It's not rooted in science. What it is, it's a alleged science that law enforcement came up with um, years and years ago, and then they decided to build their own training schools, their own classes around it, then former law enforcement officers uh, built their own software companies, and the companies that are doing the mapping of the stuff are all former law enforcement. I don't know anybody that's not former law enforcement. So they basically took a bad science and created an industry out of it, and uh, we can. I think it'd probably be best if we get into kind of how it's done. Absolutely. You know, how does law enforcement do what they do? And uh, um, basically what goes on is when you make a phone call, um, your telephone, uh, mobile phone, has a billing record associated with it. The reason it has to have a billing record that has what cell phone tower you is because the cell phone towers, most of them aren't owned by the cell phone company. They're leased. It's an antenna that they're leasing, or they're leasing the physical structure, and they're putting their own antenna on it, and they get charged per phone call. Gotcha. So many years ago, there was a thing called a joint interoperability agreement, and this interoperability agreement was between cell phone carriers. So when you were traveling along on AT&T and you wanted to roam on T-Mobile's network, you could do so, which gave you better cell phone coverage. Um, so a lot of people signed a group. And basically, the big five, we call them mobile network operators, um, signed agreements. And then everybody underneath them is what we call a mobile virtual network operator. There's about 320 of those that are the Cricket Wireless and companies like that that actually own nothing. They're just a reseller of somebody else's service is what they are. They're a label on, on a network. I see. So what they did is they you have a billing record. So you, you buy a cell phone store, you go to Walmart, you buy yourself even a prepaid phone. You go out, you activate it, and then it activates for a t certain tower, and that tower becomes what you call your home tower record. And now all your billing is tied to that home tower record and what you call your billing center. So when you travel from, let's say you activate it in Chicago, but you travel to L.A. So the L.A. network you try to connect to says, is this person able to make a phone call? So it checks this national registry and says, yeah, you can make a phone call because the national registry says you're a good guy and you paid your bill. Go so ahead. after that, it likes to make the phone call. It gives you credit. It says, okay, you're, you paid your bill or you're not delinquent. Your phone's not shut off. We're going to let you make a phone call. It's almost like an approval process. Yeah, it's like a little bit of approval process, mm -hmm. and then you make a phone call. And after you make your phone call, at the end of the month, end of the week, end of the day, depends on what kind of tower it is and where it's at, it bills your home tower record. So it says, you, Andrew Garrett, was using tower number 111222 in Los Angeles at this time and this date for this many seconds. But that's where CDR records come from. That's the that's really what we call call detail records or call data. Call detail records or call data records. Sometimes people call data. Um basically is a function of billing. It has nothing to do with location. 
Wow, that's there incredible. Is on the record and yet they put it off in a different way. That's that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, well, it goes a little beyond that. Um, it, it goes. So what you do is, if you ask me the question of, can I say that somebody was in the area of one tower and moved to an area of another tower and they're geographically 50 miles apart? The answer is yes. I can answer that question because I can see that you build on one tower and build on another. There's all kinds of funny stuff that happens when towers are next to each other. You've got trunking, got banding issues. So a banding issue is, for instance, a tower, maybe a 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G tower. And each one of those Gs, per se, is different, different technology. And it has a different footprint. It broadcasts differently. So you may be able to be 10 miles from the tower on one technology, but only be three miles from the tower on another technology. But your call detail record doesn't answer that question. It tells you you're on that tower. It doesn't tell you which technology you're using, which changes what we call the radio frequency footprint. They call them RF propagation maps. What they call them. That's the technical term for um, cell phone providers when they go in the field and they test the coverage. They build these things called RF propagation. Gotcha. And that's and that's. Kind of like how this all started was billing. And if you notice now, when the call detail records are delivered to the police department, when they issue a subpoena uh, for these records, at the very bottom, that often gets whited out, it says these records are not to be used to determine location. Yeah, uh, well, you're, you hit the nail around the head with getting whited out because a lot of times that's missing when the defense gets it as part of the discovery. <laughs> yep, all the time. Or... They get part of they get only part of it cut and pasted out in a report, and they don't actually get the source data. Right. Yeah. Well, what they'll do a lot of times too is turn over an Excel spreadsheet, you know, which uh, um, you know, would be populated by on the government's end. They'll turn over the Excel spreadsheet with all the figures dumped into there, so it's not it's not the original printout or the original report. So what do we? It's it's a defense firm. There's there's ways to counter this multiple ways you can counter this to some of what some of it is somewhat embarrassing to the government for what they're doing and how they're using this data but this data is useful it's just not useful for what they're trying to use it for there's there's urban planning there's the cdc uses it to determine how many people they could move out of the city if there was an outbreak of like ebola so they use that data they get from the cell phone carriers to determine how long it would take to move people in an emergency from one area to another Gotcha. And it's good for that because you can make some estimations, right? You could do some calculations and some estimations. But to say that Bob Jones is standing on the corner of 6th and Main Avenue, that, that that's just not possible. Um, not using CDR records. There are other records that can get you more detail of where somebody's located at, like what we call PCMD and uh, Nevos records. But those records have a short shelf life. Uh, they only get kept around you know, a week, week and a half, two weeks sometimes. And the reason is, is that is used to determine the health, the health of the cell network, and the carrier only needs it for a short amount of time. So their need is very, very short, and it's a lot, a lot of data. So they don't want to keep it around forever. They would have a real storage problem. And that, so if somebody gets murdered today, and the FBI needs to know about the cell phone record of this person, they could dump out those needless and. and call management record and they could get that stuff very very quickly and you know within a couple of days and then they, they can continue monitoring that on a day-to-day basis if they're trying to track or find something. Um, but if it's 
you know, two weeks out or oftentimes when somebody's trying to defend these cases, you're talking years later, you know, right. six months, two years later, those records are gone. So is that um, why then they default to the CDR? Is that what, do they almost try to use that as a replacement and try to give it a little more validity than it actually has? I, I think what it is is it's, um, in a lot of cases I see, this is the only thing that places the suspect at, uh, they allege this is the only thing that would place them at the crime scene. Uh, they may have nothing else. This may be the only thing. The problem is you have a cell phone tower. It may have a footprint of 20 square miles. And I hear this language all the time used in court that, you know, John Doe, was most likely located at the corner of this and corner of that. And I'm like, based on what? The footprint's 20 miles. He could have been of one of 6,000 houses, you know, 1,100 businesses, and 4,000 toilets at the time. I right. mean, you name it, he could have been anywhere, right? right? I mean, they can't, they can't pin him there. They, sure, they, can't, they can just say he's in the area. And not only that, most of the time they can say he's northeast of the tower somewhere. And they can't even answer that because let me tell you why. And this happens all the time when I testify in court is you can put the government uh, expert on the witness stand and they come out with their pretty little cones and they say the antenna broadcast in this direction and here's the beam width and here's the distance it broadcast. And then we go in the field and test and we're a quarter mile, half mile, three miles, two miles, whatever it is, outside that cone. And we take measurements and say, I can make a phone call right here and we make a phone call. And we pull our own phone records and it shows what cell phone tower we were using. And you put their expert in the witness stand and you say, can you make a call from right there? And the answer is, their answer every time is no. And it's a dauber issue at that point. They're not an expert because they never went in the field. They didn't test. They didn't do any scientific basis for anything, any scientific test for anything they did. They're simply relying on the cell phone carrier's data to say somebody is at a certain location. And as soon as they do that, we go, well, we were able to test to make phone calls there. So your data is not accurate. The problem is they don't go in the field to test. It's expensive. It takes time. You have to buy units like uh, what we call a BTS tracker by SecureCube, or you buy something like a JDSU unit, which actually goes out and tests the cell phone network. This is what, if you ever run into one of these guys from like Verizon Wireless, got a Verizon backpack with a couple antennas hanging out of it, and they're running around a sports stadium or they're running around a parking garage, with this thing, that's what they have in their backpack. They have a JDSU unit, and they are testing the network for its network health, see whether or not they can get coverage or not. I see. That is the actual unit that tests it, and it creates these things called RF propagation maps, and we'll get into that here in a minute. But the answer is there's ways to test it, and there's ways to counter what they're saying really easily by showing that their their footprint, their analysis is not correct. Um, but then again, it's an easy it's an easy win for them if nobody challenges. Yeah, that that's the problem I see. I mean, you summed it up right there. That's the problem. You know, if they get on and they and they paint it only one way and there's no opposition to that, you know, the the jurors just by human nature they get enamored with a quote unquote expert. You know, so if there's nothing to challenge that or nothing to show the other side or the reality of it, that's where the problem is. And and I see far too many times defense teams where they're not putting on an oppositional expert, and it, they don't realize the damage that it's doing by not doing that. So Sometimes it comes, uh, the reason I think that defense, sometimes defense experts aren't hired is, one, it's costly. Yes. It, and it's costly because it's a science. 
you don't go get you don't get go get a DNA test done without a DNA lab that costs millions and millions of dollars. And if they didn't test, you know, if, if they didn't run DNA on five thousand people a month, then they couldn't make any money. Well, forensic experts aren't doing five thousand cases a month. You're right. getting you're getting one person that does you know, a, a dozen cases a month, and they're buying these very expensive tools. Uh, some of these tools are thirty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000. In our laboratory alone, we have about $2.2 million worth of equipment. That's not cheap. And some of these tools you only use twice a month. So, But you need them for the cases you're working on, but you're up against the FBI and the state police and local law enforcement that have unlimited budgets sometimes especially when it comes to cases involving murder and things like that. They have this unlimited balloon of money that they just draw down from. And, um, you know, because the taxpayers are paying the bill. Well, That's the taxpayers right. aren't paying the forensic experts bill. It's usually some, some guy that's being charged that has no money at all. And the defense, the defense team just is either public defenders or they just don't have the money to do this. Well, let me but ask you, you on, do, on that note, if they, uh, sorry, uh, on that note, if they okay. are a public defender, have you encountered that where they tried to get your firm approved and were pretty much knocked down? Because I know a lot of times that, that is the problem where the defense, you know, they're using a CGA, they're using a public defender, and they try to get their own the defense wi- witness, you know, which they're entitled to, and it's actually knocked down. They're not approved for it. I mean, have you encountered that as well? Um, I haven't. I think there's a fear of getting shot down or something like that because most of the time the it's two thousand five hundred dollars or five thousand dollars. It's usually the, the the limit for an expert. Um, it's really hard for two thousand five hundred dollars to travel across the United States, go out, do some testing in the field, and then write an expert report, and then on top of that, go testify. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, it, just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't add up. Right, you could you couldn't get through the travel logistics and no, it cost you money. <laughs> Yeah, you would lose dearly. But if the case is local to the expert, it's something they could pick up. But what you'll find from most experts is they don't work in their backyard. The reason they don't is you don't make friends doing this. Because, <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, unfortunately, law enforcement doesn't like getting told they're wrong, right? right. <laughs> they they would love it. They would love it if the world was just now. I find the FBI to be completely fair most of the times. Most of the time, FBI agents. And the, the investigators there, if you come to the table and you show them where they're wrong, they will concede. Sure. They will walk away right then and there. But I can't say the same, My at least my experience of other law enforcement entities, they're not going to walk away. They'll double down. Right. And when they double down, it's more of an embarrassment. So I've had many cases where the FBI cast unit showed up, cellular analysis unit. I've testified or I filed a, a report last minute. And they walked away. Right. They simply left. I've had I had a murder case in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I went. We brought it up before the judge. We said, "Look, you haven't seated the jury. We have something to bring up to you." And I'll tell you a little bit about this. I had a gal charged with murder. That um, they had a cell phone of hers and her deceased husband. Instead, they were both together, and she called his voicemail. Okay. Right. And the location they put the phone at. I'm looking at, and I says, look, if you want to prove that she was somewhere else or something else, I need to go in the field and test it. So I told the law firm I was working for. So I went there, went to Milwaukee, went out in the field, called, looked at the tower, and the tower looked shiny chrome almost. It's brand new. And I go, well, this is interesting. I've got a brand new cell phone tower here. So I asked the, asked the business that's sitting next to it, and they says, there hasn't been a cell phone tower there. I think six months old. 
pretty wow. new. And I said, well, this is from two years ago. So I called the 800 number in the tower. I had the network operations center uh, dispatch me out a network engineer. I told him I had a problem at the tower. Well, the problem was me. <laughs> Nobody right, else. Right. So <laughs> they sent out a network engineer. Um, usually these network engineers are located within 30 miles of all the towers they work on. They have like a geographical range, and they drive around these trucks that have the Verizon logo on the side or whatever they do, and they got a bunch of equipment in back. Now, Verizon, you're thinking, well, just – Verizon. I'm not picking on Verizon, but Verizon also offers their repair services to other cell phone carriers. So they may actually manage like the whole tower, but there may be other carriers in the same tower. They're just the engineering crew that, that works in the tower. I see. So I have this engineer show up. His name's Mark. Um, and I'm talking to Mark, and I says, hey, I says, do you have an RF propagation map for this tower? He says, sure. Pull it up. And I says, do you have it from 2015, July? He goes, yeah. He goes, matter of fact, I got that subpoenaed one. Like, well, that's kind of funny because I've never seen it. Right. <laughs> We're about to go to trial in three days. <laughs> so I get this map, and he prints it off to me, and then he gives me the email sending it to the subpoena compliance department of T-Mobile. So I get, we get to trial, and we don't have this map. T-Mobile never provided it to law enforcement. Law enforcement wrote the reports off the CDR data they got from T-Mobile, but they did not provide the RF propagation map. The RF propagation map has a big old black hole right in the middle where they say they, the cell phone was at, which is a rock quarry, which is 305 feet underground and has no line of sight with the tower. Not only that, the CDR data they were using was based off a cell phone tower that didn't even exist. That tower number didn't even exist at the time of the murder. Wow. That's how horrible this was. So we take it up. I could say they probably weren't happy with their engineer for handing me all the data, yeah. <laughs> but I get told exactly why they didn't give it to the FBI. It's real simple, because if the public knew what the actual cell footprint is for coverage, they would be suing them for advertising falsely about their coverage area. Incredible. So you don't want to share out the engineering maps, and I say these are the maps of testing the network, that says they don't have cell phone coverage in a small little town, but they're selling people in that town cell phones. So there's a bad problem in the cell industry where they start selling cell phones in areas where they don't have uh, cell phone service, and they put what these things called cows to sell on wheels. They'll put one up locally. They give really horrible service. They'll sell cell phones there, and then when they get enough subscribers, they'll go build a tower. Huh. But they'll sell. They'll, they'll stand up a store in an area that they have zero coverage in on purpose. So their maps, as Verizon shows, it's painted all red for the entire United States almost. Right. And you and I know how many times we've driven out in the middle of the country. There's no cell phone service. Yeah, it's all there's about the not. marketing. All they, about the marketing. About the marketing. Yep. So in order to keep their secret secret, <laughs> they they do not share those maps. That's a problem. Yeah, so and, that, and that's, that's the danger you, of it. I mean, you have people's lives on the line where they're trying to use this data, and then you have a marketing aspect that's actually affecting the accuracy. I mean, how, how crazy is that when you think about it, right? <laughs> what's real crazy is T-Mobile's subpoena compliance department got a copy of that map, and they didn't give it to the FBI when they got requested to give it to them. Instead, they provided CDR data. <laughs> Here's the problem with CDR data. This is where it all sums up, this is, and this is kind of like where everything collapses into one frame. The call detail records have the phone number you called, what cell phone tower you started on, what cell phone tower you ended on. And from those cell phone towers, it tells you the direction, the antenna, the antenna on the tower, because some towers have three and six cells, they have multiple antennas, 
basically like a pie-shaped wedge. They're saying, this is the pie piece. Here's the azimuth. Here's the band beam width. And here's the distance it broadcasts. That data is based off of the FCC application to build the tower. Hmm. Let me repeat that. The FCC application to build the tower. That is not even. That's like that's equivalent as me saying, I know for a fact, scientifically, I can stand in the witness stand, raise my hand, and say, I a Corvette can go 145 miles an hour, and it's stable because I read the brochure. Right, right. Well, what scientific basis do I have to make anything from a brochure? I'm not the engineer. I didn't design the thing. I didn't test it. So what you're doing is you're taking an FCC application. And what you're and now the FCC application, the reason it has distance it broadcasts the signal is for what you call deconfliction purposes. So if somebody says some signals interfering with my two-way radio tower, they know what other signals broadcast far enough to reach that. That doesn't mean you can make a phone call there. It just means the signal, the furthest distance the signal can be measured at, that's that's measurable, is that distance. So none of that is correct. If you look at an RF propagation map versus those cones, they look nothing like each, each other. An RF propagation map looks like a booger squished on a piece of paper. <laughs> looks like something out of Ghostbusters. It's this crazy, funny, pattern-looking thing. It looks like uh, one of those um, Venn diagrams, or whatever they call it. Right, right. <laughs> they... Yeah, it looks it looks pretty ugly. It's definitely not a cone, and it's not a circle. It's like a couple circles all smushed together with on blot paper, right? So, um, so that's what it basically boils down to is you've got the government using a specification before a, a tower is built as being accurate and factual. When in all reality, a lot of times those towers are built, they're three or four degrees off. They only broadcast two-thirds the way they said they were going to broadcast to because it's just an application to the FCC. The FCC has no information for after the tower's built as far as the, as the uh, mobile network operator testing the tower. So they don't go back to the FCC and say, now that the tower's built, here's, our, here's the actual specs of what it's doing. They don't do that. So now when they have these experts come in for the, you know, state side or the government side, uh, when when they're, you know, putting up their PowerPoints and they're putting up their spreadsheets and they're putting up their data, it's it's pretty much just based on, like you were saying, to equate it to brochure information. I mean, it's not really based on actual testing and actual um, information or data that supports it, correct? Correct. So if you take a look at, there's a case... Uh, U.S. versus Antonio Evans of the Seventh Circuit. This got brought up. He says, hey, we've got a problem here. This is not based on any scientific data whatsoever. Nobody tested this network. You're basing it off of the specification. And in that case, the Northern District of Illinois ruled that granularization as a theory can no longer be used. So they pretty much ruled they, that it is a junk science. It ruled that it's a junk science. And they're not the only court that's ruled that. The problem is... You have to have somebody like me that goes to court to explain this to the court. Otherwise, this stuff sounds pretty sexy, right? I mean, somebody comes in, they come up with these pie charts, they do all this stuff on Microsoft Maps, and they show you all this information. They give you a picture of the tower. They talk about cell phone technologies and all this stuff, and it sounds great, right? It sounds like a science. Like all this technical mumbo-jumbo at the end of the day, 
I'm like, have you ever seen the tower? Did you ever go look at it? Did you ever go test it? Did you ever measure it? They go, no, we relied exactly on the CDR data. Well, you know where that CDR data actually came from? They don't know. Right. And a lot of law enforcement will say they don't know. Now, I've been to some, some uh, forensic conferences over the last couple of years, and I've had the companies stand in front of me that sell software that plot the, the location of somebody based on cell phone towers. And they say, here's the pie shape, and they could be anywhere in this pie, right? Um, and they've admitted in front of everybody that this is just to be used to do kind of like a general location. If somebody was traveling from east to west, north to south, um, they were moving from here 20 miles over to here, you could answer those questions. Right. That you could go to court and use. But can you say somebody's in an apartment 1F on Cermak in downtown Chicago? answers now but that's exactly what they're using it for that's they're saying that I, I often hear um, law enforcement say well there's a high likelihood or the the high probability that the person was at this location based on the cell phone tower record I just had one um, just a case this little bit ago where they a guy got accused of um, trying to kidnap a girl right. and they said Based on the cell phone records, he was in this area. Actually, I was able to say from the cell phone records, the tower he's using just prior to that and the tower he's using after that, if you take the distance between the two, if you take the RF propagation map and you measure the distance between the furthest signal reach of both those and drive between, he would have had to drive from one to the other directly with no stops whatsoever because at the time he got, um, the girl said he was trying to throw her in the back of the car he was actually, I got him on video checking in his workplace at a hospital. So we've, we said, and based on the location, they said it would have happened. Unless he was driving George Jetson's car, it couldn't have happened. But right. when you single out one specific ping off one tower at one time, yes, he could have been driving by. But there's no way he could have diverted to the area they were at based on, based on the distance and speed and calculations. There's just no way. It wasn't possible. And then when the girl gets challenged with that in the witness stand, she goes, yeah, well, the guy who did this to me had a full beard. He walked in on video in his workplace with no beard whatsoever. So <laughs> that and in a whole different set of clothes than what she said he was wearing. And he was about four inches off on height. So clearly the person that got fingered for this off of Facebook wasn't the person who did it. But the prosecution wasn't going to back down because they had this cell phone data and it told them exactly where he was at. And he must have been the suspect because he was in the middle of a cell phone area that covered 10 square miles. And there couldn't have not been another six foot two black guy there. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's the problem that I even see when you counter, you know, when you show the flaws and you show the holes and you show how things just aren't accurate they a lot of unfortunately a lot of these prosecutors they just don't give up they'll keep going with it and they'll try to talk around it and, and that's the problem i mean you figure anybody with common sense uh, you know i don't know my philosophy is this if you if you believe maybe you did make a mistake and you have the wrong guy wouldn't you want to only get the right guy i mean isn't that the job to prosecute you know somebody who's legitimately guilty not somebody who's innocent but it seems like ego is a dangerous thing and they'll just keep going on that path regardless of what the evidence is telling them we got a big problem in our industry, and I think you, we, you know, we'll reserve it for another podcast, but you have a big problem because our industry is supposed to be rooted in science. Science wins every time. But unfortunately, there's this huge divide that law enforcement's created between 
what they call the law enforcement science and everybody else. So basically, the, the, the word on the street is, if you're not law enforcement doing this type of work, you must be lying. Right. Well, you don't do that to the guy processing DNA at the third-party laboratory the state uses. They don't go to him and say, you must be lying because that's not the guy we wanted it to be. <laughs> you right. know, that doesn't right. work. Nope. But somehow in forensics, you have, you have training schools and they're law enforcement only. You have software that's sold to only law enforcement. You have software vendors that are being told by the DEA that if they sell to anybody but law enforcement, they'll cut all their contracts. Well, if you're looking for the truth in the matter, there's only one truth. So why does it matter who does it? Exactly. You, it almost a- shows that, you know, the agendas are flooding. The, and, that, and that's the problem that, that, you know, and I don't like to assume the worst, but that just leads you to believe that they're really not looking for the truth when those type of things happen. Because like you said, who cares is doing the testing? Who cares is doing the analysis? You just want the most qualified individual. And if you're not going down that route, there's a problem. You know, I view it like this. I even view the there's a couple states where uh, law enforcement really pushed on the state legislators to make it where you had to be a licensed private investigator to do computer forensics, which makes absolutely no sense. So you're telling me, as a computer forensic professional, I have to go work for a PI firm that most likely is not doing forensics for three years, then stand before a board of my peers, get licensed as a PI, and then I'm allowed to do that type of work, or the alternative is I'm former law enforcement see the difference so now i've got a former law enforcement officer that's been indoctrinated and probably biased maybe biased let's put it that way in in everything they do a little bit towards law enforcement that is now doing my criminal defense case and isn't and may not be the most qualified person to do it but because of the law in that state i have to hire them i can't hire anybody else that's incredible so that makes no sense whatsoever because there's no requirement for the guy doing dna there's no, no requirement it's actually just shifting law enforcement or PI. Yeah, it's actually just shifting it where it's 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 stacking the deck in one-sided favor. I mean, and it's it's amazing that, you know, people don't see this and I'm sure, you know, people aren't even aware of these type of things. That's the problem, you know. It is. And I've been beating the drum for a while now. Um I've had the conversations with the DOJ. They they some of the senior leadership had no idea some of this is going on. They they shaking their head they're like this is not possible. And I'm like, this injects bias into the system. We are supposed to be scientists. We're supposed to look at the data. We're supposed to report on the data, not have any bias whatsoever. And then you, you, get, um, you get these cases now where sometimes the courts are saying, well, def- Mr. Defense Expert, you couldn't possibly be an expert and defend this case because you've never been to this training school. Well, guess what? The training school is only offered to law enforcement. Right. So how could you be to that school? So that – but. But that training school is based off of a science, and if the science is not peer-reviewed by the entire community, not just law enforcement community, then it's subject for Daubert or Fry. Throw it out. Right. It's a junk science. It's got to be accepted, generally accepted by your peers and the, and the entire community. Um, and it doesn't have to be entire community. That's not actually in the law. It's just the community. But you can't single out and say, I'm only going to have law enforcement test law enforcement software and nobody else, right? Right. Of course, you know what the results are going to be. Yeah, we can predict, predict those cases every time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's an easy, easy situation. Now, there are situations where there are law enforcement-only schools that they're talking about tac- tactics and procedures that are law enforcement sensitive or you're talking about classified data and things like that with the DOD. There's sure. reasons for those sure. rules, right? 
But that doesn't mean that somebody can't get, uh, the court can't authorize somebody else to dig in, another expert to dig into the data, test the data, and come to the same conclusion. Because us as forensic experts have one job. Our job is to analyze the same data that law enforcement analyzed, maybe analyze more if we can get, we can get access to more of it because it's our client, analyze the same data using the same methodology, same procedures, and see if we come up with the same result, we come up with the same opinion. Right. If it's different, then that's where you challenge their expert court. If it's the same, then you've just validated their results. Right. And, and that's actually my, my gripe, so to speak, is that there's no problem with those things. There's no problem if you want to have the law enforcement training because I have no problem with any of that. Where I have a problem is then when they exclude uh, anything that doesn't fit into that one umbrella. That's the problem. When they try to make it that it could only fit into that one puzzle, and if they're not doing it and they're not completing it, then you know it, it can't be counted and you can't be utilized. That's really where the problem is, and that's... That's where the disconnect is. And, and what's bothersome is, you know, jurors just aren't aware of these things. They don't understand what goes into these things. And when they see the uh, experts get on the stand for the prosecution side, they're just enamored. And, you know, we just had a case now. You could tell every juror everything that came out of their, the, the expert's mouth on the government's end, it, it was like gospel to the juror. And, and, and if it goes unchallenged, that's a huge problem. That's a huge blow to the defense. Huge blow. Well, there's there's some there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Let me let me read to you from U.S. versus Antonio Evidence, Evans, and that's case 10 CR 747 TAC 3. That Judge uh, Lefko in the Northern District and the Eastern Division of Illinois it says the court agrees that using Google Maps to plot these locations does not require scientific, technical, or other other specialized knowledge, and that these exhibits are admissible through lay opinion testimony under Rule 701. That's because they wanted to inject some maps showing where the cell phone towers were at. That's fine. The net, then it goes on to say, Special Agent Ratchy may not testify concerning, concerning the theory of granulization, which the court finds to be unreliable. In addition, the estimated coverage areas contained in Summary Exhibit 6 must be removed before the court will admit this exhibit. There's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Some courts are wisening up. And it used to be that you could get away with this stuff because nobody challenged you. Think about it. If you went in unopposed, you win. That's right. You, you can say whatever you want. That's right. But those days are over. Yep. So, well, um, hopefully that's a little start of a tide. And, you know, what I talk about a lot on the podcast is, unfortunately, you know, it boils down to the individual. You know, it boils down to the judge that you have, what they're going to allow in, how much leeway they're going to get. If they truly are unbiased, you know, if if – you know, if or if they are biased, and that's the problem. You know, that's that's what it boils down to, and that's what I see a lot of defendants, unfortunately, getting hit with, where they can't put on the case that they want to put on because during the pretrial and the motions they're submitting, they're getting denied a lot. You know, and they're not allowed to ask certain questions, they're not allowed to um, analyze certain information, they're not allowed to challenge, and that's really where the problem is, and that's the disconnect, and that's why I, I just harp on the importance of having an expert such as yourself and such as your firm where you need the defense to just show the other side of these things because if they get on and they just paint it one way, it's devastating to any case. It's just devastating. It is. It's, it's the, the jury shakes their head the whole time and they believe it. And then when we start talking, we start throwing out things like, somebody on this juror, I'm sure, lives in this area. Who's to know that they didn't do it? Right. The mayor lives there. The co co police commissioner lives there. Are they now suspects too because they live in this cone? Right. You know, it's right. just, 
it's it, it's absurd and um and over and over again even i've even challenged the very people that wrote books on how to do this stuff i've had them in a case where they had to concede that they can't tell you where the person was at they just know they're in some 20 mile circle maybe they don't even know that because it says this radio frequency propagation it changes over time antennas are tuned and changed and altered and if you don't test it right afterwards um it's you're you're not going to get a perfect accurate reading but you may get an estimation so the whole answer is i can give you an estimation but i surely can't put somebody on a street corner or in a crime scene it's not even possible with cbr records i can tell you that they're in the same town they're on the northeast side of the town that's about it gotcha and how from your experiences like do you get do you get a situation where um, it could actually bounce off another tower. Like, is there any reasoning, you know, the weather, I don't know how it would work, where it could affect the signal, where maybe it pinged off a tower where they're really not that close to that tower. It's not the closest tower to where their lo- physical location is, but it pinged off of that tower. Does that ever come up? Distance to tower has nothing to do with whether or not you're using that tower. Um, there are so many other factors. Now, you've got environmental factors, like you're standing on the backside of a metal building, right? And there's uh, obstructions in the way. There's weather issues. Take out all that stuff because that's really hard to kind of calculate. The whole idea is this. is A cell phone tower, let's say a cell phone tower only holds 60 phone calls. What if you're number 61? You can't make a call on that tower. It's going to let you use the tower next to it. Or there's, or there's trunking issues. So in other words, the tower says, I'm going to hand you off from this tower to the next tower because we think you're closer over there. And then you start getting close to the other tower and it says, nah, I'm just going to hold on to your, hold on to your call for a little bit, but I'm going to trunk it over as soon as you get, as soon as you get really, really far away. So you may be, and then you've got towers like what we call super towers, which is a tower that has a really big broadcast range. And you've got a bunch of little towers within that tower. You could be using either one. You could be using the big tower, or you could be using the little tower. They're both aimed in the same direction. And now when that takes um, place, how, how, how far of a radius does it open up to where you could actually be located in reference to that tower that it, that it uh, moved you to? Regardless, there's going to be an RF propagation footprint. And you're basically going to say, based on this phone call, you were somewhere in this footprint. If you were on that tower, there's a, tower, there's a footprint for the tower, a big, giant, huge, like, egg-shaped looking circle thing and uh you know crazy outer little legs coming off of it so it isn't a perfect cone or a perfect circle or a perfect egg it's this weird looking it's the radio frequency propagation map but you're somewhere in that radio frequency footprint if you're using that tower there is there has been some situations and it's very rare that towers have been banded together so you actually have two towers acting as one they have the same tower number because remember the tower number has to do with billing, okay? Right. And it has to do with that type of stuff. So sometimes your phone can connect to two different towers, but they're named the same. Super rare only happens temporarily, and that's something usually that happens when they stand up a brand new tower that's going to replace an old tower. They leave them both running. For gotcha. Them. But it's happened. Right. But right. the whole the whole idea is, is we can we can draw on a map with RF propagation and show you what tower you're using. But if there's other towers that broadcast in the area and they say, well, now you're using this other tower and the other tower, you could be standing still the whole entire time. You didn't even have to be moving. Wow. You could ping off multiple towers standing in the same place. And, and what kind again, of radius would you tower. say each tower has? Uh, is there a general basis for that? Or does it fluctuate? 
Um, it depends on what type of tower, what type of technology they're using, what kind of um, you know antennas they're using, and then what kind of um, uh, the height of the tower. Those things. There's there's a website, uh, Spectre Site, American Tower is one of the companies that own a lot of towers in the United States. They actually publish that data. You can go on there, and it won't tell you the it won't tell you the RF footprint, but it'll tell you like the height of the tower, the type of antenna that's strapped to it, those type of things. Gotcha. Which doesn't really necessarily help you determine the footprint because they could turn the power down on the thing. You never know. Right. It could be full power or half power, those type of things. But in general, most towers can broadcast anywhere from a mile to twenty miles. Gotcha. Twenty miles is a large geographic area. So to get an idea, when the police, let's say, have a murder and they have a lost body in the woods hypothetically, to cover every square foot with a dog of a one-mile square, it takes 40 people 48 hours. Okay. Yeah, so that'll give you a mile. visual of how, how large that actually is. Yeah. 20 miles is going to take a lot of – it's a lot of locations you can be at. If you took a 20-mile ring, you could literally put a city with 100,000 people in it now you got 100,000 people as suspects, and you know how many locations those 100,000 people could be in, from everything from Walmart to the bathroom at the, at the grocery store. Every, right. I mean, it, it could be anywhere. Yeah, well, even when, um, you know, when you get, like, in the, in the, the suburbs, in the suburb, you know, that kind of area, you have towns that are right next to each other, so you could have somebody in a completely different town. I mean, that's what's so dangerous, and they don't explain those type of things. They make it that, no, this is exactly where he was, this is how he was traveling, or she was traveling. And the problem is, if it's not opposed, that's what the jurors di- digest, and that's what really hit home for them, and that's what they make their decisions based on. And I've seen it play out. It's re- it's frustrating when you're sitting there and you know a little bit about it. I can only imagine what you go through when you're hearing some of these uh, quote-unquote experts speak, and it's just it's not accurate. You know, I I used to hear him speak, but I tend to now. Every, every case I've showed up to in the past about four years, they refuse to testify. <laughs> I showed up and they left. Well, that means you're nice, doing something right. Yeah. You're doing something right if that's the case. <laughs> I always say this is, um, if you have a defense expert, the prosecution didn't have the right expert on their end. Because if their experts did their job, there would be no defense expert. That's a great way of putting it. That's right. So the more you see a prosecutor's expert in the witness stand, you know that they're they're not doing the right work. Right. That's the way I look at it, because if there was an ironclad report, it wouldn't do it. Because us experts are not in the business of finding technical I gotchas, get out of jail free cards, right? I mean, that's not what we do. No, of course Because it's not going to help you in front of a jury. It just isn't. It's not going to help you at a bench trial. No, it just takes away your credibility. I mean, if if you're doing that way. Yeah, they're going to look at you like, you know, it's kind of like, oh, there's a virus in the computer excuse. Not going to work. You know, you need to have it rooted in science. But if you say, hey... You put him there, but I'm telling you, I can place him also 25 miles from the same place, and you can't tell the difference. That's a big deal. Absolutely. Right? I mean, that's a big deal. They're saying, this person was in this neighborhood, and I'm saying, no, how about they were in that city? Right, right. And then they go, well, that that, that is – then they ask you the question, isn't that neighborhood within the city? Well, yes, it is. Right. But so is 7,000 other locate businesses and 150,000 residents, right? I mean, right. you can't – and you get those goofy questions like, isn't that in here? Isn't that in here? And I says, yes, including this very courtroom, including the mayor's house, commissioner's house, and everything. I could, you know, this suspect could have been anywhere. Yeah. He could have been a church. You can't tell the difference. You yeah. know, just because that's it's like 
it's kind of like saying I have a bunch of apples and just because one's bad in the middle, I can't tell which one's what. I'm just going to say they're all bad. Right. It doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work that way. Well, I tell you, Andrew, this was very informative, and uh, we're going to be doing a few calls because you have a lot of different topics that I think we can enlighten the listeners on because, um, you know, that's the purpose of what I'm trying to do here is just trying to educate the public and open their eyes to what really takes place and basis behind these things, not just make claims without supporting it, but just to, and it's as we were touching on earlier, it's not a matter of just trying to say, well, our side's right or this is right. That That's not what it's about. It's just showing the facts, showing actual accounts showing how things actually work and going from there not trying to look at it with an agenda or look at it from one set of eyes i don't want to scare people off in thinking that this is not affordable i i think any of these cases when you get cell phone data um regardless of expert I mean, you can always call our office we'll love to hand, work with you but if you don't call any expert call your office and have the data analyzed you know, you're talking a couple hours consulting time, less than $1,000. You're done con- analyzing all the data, and then they're going to tell you whether or not you're going to bear fruit from continuing down that mission. If they do tell you, hey, this is this is good because we can place the suspect somewhere else or we can put a, a huge uh, you know gap in time between these things and they could have been anywhere, they could have drove 10 miles over, those type of things – They'll discuss that with you, and they'll talk to you about it, and then they'll give you a cost on doing everything else. But a lot of these cases now, you don't have to testify. If, if, if a defense expert writes a really good report and it's shared with the prosecutor, a lot of times the prosecutor will concede. They'll say, we're not going to use that data. And the reason they do is they often go back to their detective, and their detectives read it, read the defense expert report, and go, this guy knows more than I do. This guy clearly has can talk to a jury, and has a lot of technical experience that I don't even understand what he's talking about because I've never seen any of this stuff. I've never been part of the FCC licensing. I've never looked at engineering specifications. And it doesn't have to get technical. All the technical mumbo-jumbo we attach to the back of the report, and we just reference it, right? Right, right? But it scares the prosecutors. Prosecutors are really scared to get into that because then it detracts from the, usually the rest of their data, right? The rest of the evidence in the case. Um, because now they're derailed on this one thing that the jury's kind of shaking their head and looking at the prosecutor like, what are you doing here? This doesn't seem right. And then everything else they, everything else they have, they lose their trust and credibility. in. So what we tend to do is if you do your analysis up front and you write your, write your client a really good letter that could be shared, um, you could possibly avoid having an expert come to trial. Right. And, and, and honestly, you know, somebody's life's on the line. So it's it's really important to at least do that initial step. And like you said, the initial step is very cost effective and it's not expensive. It's just a matter of making sure whether or not you have something there or you don't. And it's just vital for that. And what, what would be the best way any of our listeners to really uh, contact your firm? Andrew, what's the best way to do that through the website, through the email? What would you say is the best way for that? You can always call. Um if you go to GarrettDiscovery.com, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-D-I-S-C-O-V-E-R-Y.com, there is, if you go to our contact section, there's different offices throughout the United States to call. And, uh, or you can call our 800 number, which is 888-822-5077. That's 888-822-5077. And they'll direct you to the right office that's closest to you. Um, we have offices throughout the Midwest to the East Coast, and one office in Nairobi, Kenya. It works with a lot of banking clients. Um, 
on internal investigations. Well, we'll be glad to help you. We fly all over. We work in multiple countries and all across the United States, coast to coast. Most of our experts are on a plane, you know, 10, 10 to 14 days a month they're traveling, uh, going to trials and testifying. I personally have testified you know, uh, uh, hundreds of times. Right. <laughs> and it's, uh, right. I think the last count was 212 or something like that, I think. <clears throat> but uh, we testified not only in this, we work in uh, audio, mobile, video, forensics, uh, you and I have worked together in cases before. Absolutely. Um, yep. And, I, and I've spoke and about the uh, different uh, the different things we've touched on. And uh, and again, they could always just contact me and I'll put them in touch with you. So uh, either way, I mean, it's very important that they have a, uh, you know, conversation. I mean, just because these things are just so important and they can impact the case so dramatically. I've seen it played out, play out, unfortunately. And if you don't have that opposition, it really is. It's uh, it could go it could go south very quickly. And that's why I try yep. to just and stress these see... things to the listeners. It's not even so much uh, as a matter of, you know, uh, well, they're wrong, they're assuming. It's just a matter of getting to the facts. That's all. You just want to make sure whatever discovery you get, whatever information, whatever claims that are being made by the state or the government or the prosecution is accurate. That's all. And if it's not accurate, you have a right to expose that and show the truth. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're a different type of firm because we... We do uh, take training very serious for other experts. So if you already have an expert, if somebody, has, somebody listening to this has an expert they work with, keep working with them if you want. That's fine. Call us in. We'll be glad to train them while we're there. We'll come in. We'll help you, and we'll train the local guy we're at it because he might as well learn something while we're at it. And there's times other experts have taught us things. So we are, we are more than friendly to everybody. We view nobody as competitors. We view them as colleagues. Yep. Um, yep. Anytime, and it's the same thing like when you and I met, we said, let's, let's work together, let's do some cases together, and it's one of those things that we're very, very open, we're very transparent, and we're not one of those people that play, you know, hold our cards close to our chest or anything like that. We're, um, we're talking about, we're scientists, yep. but we like educating too. So we were more than willing to come in and educate some people. And I think um, what we always had in common is just that we just want to help whoever we're working with, whoever we're trying to defend. We just want to make sure they get in the best defense possible. And that's really what it's about. It's just trying to allow that to happen, you know? Absolutely. I always say this is if your expert is all technical, it's a bad day for you. If your expert is a quarter strategist, quarter legal scholar and a 50% forensic expert, you're in a good position because they're going to make sure they, they should have the knowledge to know how this is going to play out in court, how this is going to work, um, how to, how you could pitch your best foot forward because sometimes they can see the freight train coming down the tracks before you can. Right. So one of the things they always say to do is strategy first. So there are cases that this is really good to use in. And then there's cases that this is horrible because the knife does cut both ways even though you may be able to say, I want all the CDR data if it places your client at the scene, that's a problem. But there's other data. Um, when we're talking about this call detail records, there's other data if you want to place somebody somewhere else. You've got cell phone data from the cell phones. It's actually imaged the cell phone. I can pull out all the GPS locations. I can pull the GPS locations out of their, out of their pictures, out of their Instagram, Facebook account, those type of things all have location data in them. And Google now has what people are calling reverse warranting. They have the ability not only to tell you where your phone was at, they could tell you who was standing next to you. So you can subpoena that type of data. So if you want to place somebody somewhere else and you know the phone was somewhere else besides where they're saying it was at, call us. 
we'll work with you because there's a lot of other sets of data. The problem with a lot of this other data is it's for law enforcement, they don't want to get it if they've got CDR data and it places you at the scene. They can say, hey, you were close. We know you were within the cell phone coverage. They don't want to look anywhere else because if they did and it said you were somewhere else, it, it shoots their theory. That's right. You know? That's right. They just want to have so, together you know, what they need for their, for their case, and that's why it's so important to explore these other right. options. Absolutely. Yeah. Explore, explore, because it's just a subpoena, right? Yeah. It's a subpoena, a couple hours worth of work for an expert to look at. If an expert's telling you 10, 20 grand, don't, don't hire him. Um, you should be able to analyze this data in a couple hours and be able to tell you, especially if you say, I, I'm only looking at a very one specific date and time or a couple hours. Uh, they should be able to answer those questions quickly. Now, if you have three months worth of data and it's a three-month travel plans, you're going to get a larger bill because it's going to take some time to analyze Absolutely. Um, but if you're just looking at a small, small section of time, you should be able to get away with, you know, thousand, twelve hundred bucks. Have this done. Yeah, and it'll just give you direction, if nothing else. You know, it'll give you direction of what, what you're looking at and where you could go from there. So it's very important. There's only one truth. That's our answer in our office every day. We got it hanging on the wall. It says there's only one truth. There's not multiple truths. <laughs> so true. the answer is we're seeking the one truth. Um, so there's only one version of the story. Yep, I, I, I like that. Well, I, again, Andrew, I really appreciate your time, and we're gonna, you know, uh, we discussed. I know we're gonna um, uh, let the listeners know of any other topics we're gonna be rolling out, but we have a lot of things we could dive into to just further educate and just enhance, you know, the knowledge base, and hopefully we get a few potential jurors as listeners where when they're on a case they'll remember some of what was said throughout these podcasts will sink in and just open their minds a little bit so that they're not you know, falling for any facades or smoke and mirrors. That's really what it's all about. I agree. Yep. I appreciate you having me on today. No, I appreciate your time, and thanks for calling in, and uh, we'll speak soon. All right, thanks. You have Thank a great day. You too. And that was uh, Andrew Garrett. I, I believe it was a very informative and uh, interesting podcast today. And like I said, we're going to have other topics we're going to cover I'm going to look to get uh, different experts from his office on with their area of expertise. And, uh, you know, it's just it all goes back to what the basis of the podcast is all about. It's just about informing the public, getting them to understand what's going on, defendants to possibly know their options, to, to strategize, helping defense teams, and just trying to help fix what sometimes, unfortunately, is a broken system. You know, when you're dealing with biased and you're dealing with people who have a target and you deal with agendas, you're really fighting an uphill battle. So you have to have the tools available to you to give you the best fighting chance and to counteract a, um, a severe opponent. You know, uh, you know, you have an opponent like I've, I've touched on with uh, sometimes endless money, endless funds, and endless time. There's really nothing more dangerous than that. So I want to hopefully give our listeners the tools to prepare for that and do the best they can to make sure they get a fair case with the strongest defense team and the strongest strategies possible. And thanks for uh, listening to this episode. And this is Justice Tech Pros. Talk to you next time.